The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and pray if we might. We'll go ahead and start. Father, thank you for this day, for the time that we have together to study, and I pray that you would help us to make the most of this time and uh, give us uh, clear minds and help us to understand baptism and the Lord's Supper as we continue to study in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. um, So this is our third week on baptism, and I want to talk about two other aberrant views of baptism. Uh, Actually, not aberrant views, not at all, um, but uh, views in which Christians uh, sometimes disagree or, or struggle. We'll put it that way. Infant baptism last time, uh, but this is definitely an aberrant view, and that's the doctrine of baptismal uh, regeneration. And uh, basically what baptismal regeneration is the idea that it is required for us to be water baptized in order to go to heaven. In other words, you have to be water baptized in order to go to heaven. It's very, very uh, uh, serious teaching. Uh, that water baptism is required for eternal salvation. There are some texts that seem to teach this. Mark 16, 15, and 16. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So you can see that that might seem to teach baptismal regeneration, that you have to be water baptized in order to go to heaven. Uh, some point to John 3, 5. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And then um, Acts 2, 37 and 38, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So th- those are three verses that seem to teach that water baptism, at least two of them clearly, that water baptism is clear is required for salvation. John 3, 5 doesn't mention baptism, but it talked about being born of water, and they interpret it that way, that you have to be born of water in order to enter the kingdom of, of God. Um, let's uh, look at the verses a little bit and kind of unravel them uh, first, if we might. In Mark 16, 15, and 16, first of all, uh, it's a bit problematic in that there's a question whether these verses really are even scriptural. Whether they're even even were originally in Mark's gospel, I bring that up only because it's going to be brought up uh, in every one of the English Bibles that you hold. They're all going to tell you that most of the ancient manuscripts of Mark's gospel do not contain from verse uh, verse nine on to the end of Mark 16. So you know they have snake handling in there. They have all kinds of interesting things at the end. If you drink deadly poison, it will not come on you. Have you read these verses? I'm sure you have. Um, uh, I don't know for sure whether they were originally included or not. I'll tell you what. I'll just assume that they were and teach as though they were and try to explain these verses as best I can, okay? Note one thing here. It says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But the second half is, is also in there. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the focus really is on what? Belief. It's pretty obvious because it does not say, whoever does not believe and is baptized will not be condemned. So baptism isn't mentioned twice. Frankly, by the way, I, I see that same kind of dynamic in the healing passage in James where it says, if any one of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church. 
uh, to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. That's what the verses say. Okay, at the beginning of the telescoping kind of concept is elders praying and anointing with oil. The second phase, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Where's the oil in phase two? It's not even mentioned. And then phase three, the Lord will raise him up. At that point, prayer isn't even mentioned. Bottom line is the operative aspect there is the Lord's saving work, his healing work. That's what really matters. So as we said before, you know, prayer changes things. Fine, I accept the statement, but let's be honest. It's really God that changes things. And he does it through prayer. And in that case, he might do it through prayer and the anointing with oil. Uh, I think I see the same dynamic here. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but the real operative issue here is, is faith. It's believing. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's about the best I can do with it. If you want to work on it uh, some more, you can. The one thing that troubles me, uh, you know, John 3, 5, how do we know that this is even referring to baptism? You know, it just says whoever is born of water and the Spirit, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. I would just have to reserve judgment on that. If you're going to teach a, a very controversial and difficult doctrine like baptismal regeneration, I would suggest that the verse should at least mention baptism. Okay? So let's not even deal with John 3, 5. And then again in Acts 2, um, brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, again, I'm not saying uh, that baptism isn't important. Baptism is important. But we know that water baptism does not forgive sins. In other words, I think the most important thing you have to learn with Bible interpretation is you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And let's not forget when we come to Acts chapter 2 and Peter's statement that he makes here, what we also learn in Romans, that we are justified by faith apart from any works and that, uh, that water baptism is not required for justification. Or else it will be mentioned in the book of Romans and other places. Uh, now, what groups teach baptismal regeneration? Well, probably the most widespread group that teaches is the Roman Catholic Church. Hang on a second. The Roman Catholic Church teaches baptismal regeneration. As a matter of fact, they teach it in conjunction with infant baptism, believe it or not. In other words, that they believe that an infant that's baptized by a, you know, an ordained Catholic priest is at that moment born again. Now, I didn't realize that this was the official teaching of the Catholic Church until one of my nieces or nephews got baptized. And, and I listened then as a, as a Christian and probably by then as a seminary student to what the priest was saying. And I said, whoa, what happened there? You have now declared this baby to be born again. I didn't realize. So I went and did some research and found out that that is actually the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, that at the moment of baptism, that little child is born again into the kingdom of God. That, my friends, is a very good example of baptismal regeneration. Uh, there are other groups that teach it. Uh, they generally derive uh, from uh, a teacher named, I think his name is Alexander Campbell. They're called Campbellite groups. And so these are Church of Christ groups uh, that uh, I think basically all the Church of Christ um, churches teach baptismal regeneration. They teach that water baptism is required for salvation. Some groups go even beyond that, such as the Boston Church of Christ and others who plant, you know, church plants all around, including the Triangle Church here in the Durham area. Where is it? Is it near, out in Chapel Hill? Do you all know where, where is the Triangle Church? I know that we have people who moved into our neighborhood specifically to um, 
evangelize our neighborhood okay. to join their church is the only way to get to heaven. That's right. And and the key thing... The cool part is you're going kind of that back way to a kind of worldwide... Didn't we go to a yard sale there once? I think that we actually did go to a yard sale once. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, you know, unsanctified <laughs> objects bought at the Triangle Church of Christ. Um, at any rate, the Triangle... Huh? We didn't buy anything? Praise God. Because I might want to get it out of our house, you know. But at any rate... Um, yeah, they, they teach, not only do you have to be water baptized, you have to be water baptized by their church, their local church or a branch of it. And if you're not baptized by their local church, you're going to hell. So, I mean, so it goes, so it goes. I mean, that's how the Campbellite groups are. That's how really how they started. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obviously problematic. Now, there is a very great... I'm sorry, you were asking a question some time ago. Go ahead. Um, two things. Uh, one is... Um discussion I was having with somebody this week about infant baptism mm-hmm. leading to regeneration. He pointed out that if they really believe that, why aren't they um, baptizing people with a fire hose in the city, mm-hmm. you know, the center of the city? You know, that would be the means of regeneration for them. Well, they, you did yeah, have, right. historically, there sure. have been some times of... Oh, death. you mean infant baptism? Oh, anybody. I just mean, baptize them all. The ordained priest baptizing someone confers salvation. Hey, go just take a fire hose out and baptize everybody instead of a. Uh, and then the Good point. What did they say? Uh, <laughs> no, the individual talking to me told me that. Oh, I so see. I all right. Them. Yeah, um, that's true. Back to John three five. Uh, unless he is born of water and the Spirit, I mm-hmm. mean, it makes me think of uh, Ephesians five twenty six speaking of Christ, he might, right. that he might sanctify her in the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Right. So it might refer to the word of God. Yeah, and also Titus 3, 5 says he saved us uh, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the same kind of thing is a spiritual washing. First Peter says, not the cleansing of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So I think it's definitely spiritual. Um, but yeah, I, I, I very much appreciate those those comments. So these are groups that teach it. There may be some other groups that teach baptismal regeneration. I don't know what they are. Um, all right, well, what is the danger here? The bottom line is the greatest danger is that it's another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Frankly, I believe that Galatians addresses this quite directly. Uh, it, it really, if I'm dealing with a, with a Church of Christ kind of person, and I really want to go, I'm going to go to Galatians, because in Galatians, um, he's dealing with the Judaizers who are saying you had to be circumcised plus believe in Jesus. Circumcision plus faith is what saves. Well, faith plus anything is another gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so faith plus baptism is just a different version of that same thing. Faith justifies. That's what Romans 4 uh, teaches us. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's all that's necessary. You have to have the right gospel. If the right gospel is preached, the true gospel is preached, And if a person hears that true gospel and believes it, they are justified. That's it. Praise God for that. That's the simplicity of our faith. Now, we believe that God is sovereign over all of that, and he's the one that gives the faith, and and that God is active in all of that, and that's what it means to be born again, and this isn't some mechanistic thing. This is something God is doing. But the fact of the matter is, it's really just that simple. You hear, and you believe, and you're justified. And so where then is water baptism with Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? It's not even there. How could it be then? Frankly, that is a problem. What, how, what argument could be given for those in the Old Testament? What provision is there for Old Testament saints? You know, Paul removes circumcision in Romans 4, removes it entirely. Under what condition was, was it credited to him as righteousness? Was it before he was circumcised or after? 
It was not after, but before, he says. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That's what he says in Romans 4. So the, the work of circumcision didn't add anything to his standing before God. It had another purpose. That's all. But where is water baptism in Abraham's experience? There's no record of it at all. So how in the world do you teach it? What provision is there for Old Testament saints? It's really quite confusing. But to the core of it, the really the core is this is no gospel at all. It is no gospel. And it is not an accident that Boston Church of Christ or Triangle Church are inevitably legalistic about how they go about the Christian life. They're inevitably legalistic. They are meticulous in their discipleship. You talk about discipleship. They have disciplers who meet with their disciples and ask them meticulous stewardship questions about time and money and other things so that sin can be smoked out, basically, and repentance can be given and all that sort of stuff. And it, it just flat out behaves like a cult. There's no other way to put it. They, those, those groups, they just act cult-like. And that's what happens. And, and that's absolutely, Paul saw it with, with the Judaizers. Once you bring in works righteousness, once you bring in the law and legalism and all that, you have another gospel and you're on a whole different road. And in the end, those works become far more important than anything Jesus ever did. So you look at some of these statements about Christ. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ died for nothing. If the big difference between the person in, he in heaven and person in hell is water baptism, then water baptism is what's saved, not Jesus. But Jesus will have the glory. He saves. And his death on the cross is sufficient. And we don't need anything more. So we are simply justified by faith. That's what Galatians teaches. Yes, go ahead. No, I, I didn't define cults there. I just said that it became cults-like. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't worked on a, on a thoroughgoing definition of cults. They're just different flavors of what Satan is doing. Some t no, some t well, it is cult-like for sure. Um, I think as uh, we heard the other day about the heavenly arithmetic where, where cults add and subtract and multiply and divide, generally they add to the commandments of God extra things that are not commanded. Uh, and they subtract from the work of Christ, etc. So that, I would start doing that. I would look at First John. If I were going to do a really pure and strong definition of a cult, I would look at what he does with Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist, the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh? So inevitably, they start doing things with Jesus. You know, like the, the Mormons are a cult, so what do they do with Jesus? Well, they deny that he's the eternally begotten Son of God. They start teaching weird things about Jesus. So. They also probably have to interfere a lot in your personal life because yeah. they don't have the Holy Spirit to create any glue in the church, so they have to do it by yeah. I have read on the internet numbers of testimonies of people who escaped basically from the Boston Church of Christ, and it's really quite sad to read what their lives were like, what the the discipler relationship was like, you know how how accountable they were. You know, they would like check in. I mean, they would be asked questions like, now usually it takes you half an hour to get home and it took 48 minutes. What did you do for those 18 minutes? You know, I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of accountability and discipleship and things like that, but that's ridiculous. You know, that is clearly invasive and intrusive and it's just, that's not what we're called to do. I think you're, you're called to give Jesus an account for the 18 minutes. And if you did something sinful with them, then fine. And if you feel like you need to confess something to somebody, then fine. But the thing is, to have somebody there all the time, day after day, asking you those kinds of questions, friends, we're not heading there here at this church, just so you know. Because that is just, that is, uh, it's just evil, and I think it's works righteousness. That's what they do. All right? The opposite danger, however, is to say in some way that baptism isn't important at all. 
And frankly, it was because of discussions with the Boston Church of Christ when I was living up in that area that I realized that I had never been baptized. I had come to faith in Christ through a parachurch group that does not baptize, Campus Crusade for Christ. They don't baptize anyone. They're not a church. Uh, They lead people to Christ, but then what? They urge them to go get involved in good churches. But that urging wasn't enough for me to be baptized. And so I had been a believer in Christ for uh, well over a year, more actually, without ever really being troubled about the issue of water baptism. I believe if I had died in that time, I would have gone to heaven. I had been justified by faith, but I hadn't been baptized yet. Notice also I hadn't refused baptism either. It just hadn't come across my radar screen. I just hadn't thought much about it. It just wasn't an issue. But in dealing with the Boston Church of Christ, I realized as I was looking at the verses, wait a minute, there is something here. And Jesus does command us to be baptized. And if I refuse, then that's sin. And so at that point, I was eager and ready to be baptized. And Mark Dever baptized me in the Ipswich River, 1985, I think it was. And uh, it was cold, very cold. I'll never forget that. I didn't say they don't talk about it. I'm saying they don't do it. No, but then they didn't tell, they don't tell believers. No. Either that that or they told me and and there were so many other things going on it didn't hit. But my guess is they talk about the Great Commission all the time, but they're in a a difficult way because they're raising funds from Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and all that and they don't want to have to decide about baptism. They're kind of stuck a bit. So they don't push polity issues. They don't push issues that divide evangelicals. They just save people, so to speak, and whatever. That's another topic, and I could go off in a whole different other direction. Um, they do a lot of good work, but I can tell you this, that, that my discipler didn't push water baptism much. We didn't talk about it much. Um, at any rate, there is that op- opposite danger, making baptism of no account as though or mere ritual. So refusally baptize, baptize is significant. All right, what I call the so-called silver bullet text. You're not always going to get silver bullet text, but I think these are two. So um, I really don't know how you deal with this any other way, all right? The first is Jesus' statement, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so much for that. Um, He's speaking to whom at this particular moment? The thief on the cross. And so how is that a silver bullet text for baptismal regeneration? Well, there's no evidence that the Romans let the thief be baptized. Well, that's a very careful statement. I mean, others might go further and say he wasn't baptized. um, But... uh, (laughs) There is no evidence that he gave him leisure to come down off the cross, get baptized, and then go back up on the cross. I think it would be ludicrous. They would not have done that. So I think we, we actually can safely say he wasn't baptized. Can we all assent to that, that the thief on the cross wasn't baptized? And then there's this statement by the Apostle Paul. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, why would that be particularly potent in this particular discussion? Why is that important? Well, remember what's going on there. He's talking about his ministry among the Corinthians. And uh, remember how there, there are factions in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. I follow Jesus. That's my favorite group of all. Those are the dangerous ones, by the way. You say, how is that? Well, they have the special day of the, the red phone right to Jesus, and they know God's will for everybody. So at any rate, there are definite factions going on in the church, all right? Um, And he says, look, were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, you weren't baptized in the name of Paul. You were baptized in the name of Jesus, all right? He said, I thank God I didn't baptize many of you. I think I baptized household of Stephanus and a few other people. He's trying to remember. It's, It's like he's like, who else did I baptize? I don't even know. Yeah, I think there are a few others. Anyway, but the fact of the matter is, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
Now, why would that be important for this particular issue of baptismal regeneration? Remember the doctrine. What is the doctrine we're dealing with here? What does baptismal regeneration teach? Water baptism is required for you to go to heaven. So how does this statement fit into that? Christ didn't send me to water baptize, but to preach the gospel. All right, obviously then he's saying that water baptism is not the point of my ministry. And who baptizes my converts is really not that important to me. It doesn't matter to me if I do it or somebody else does it or whatever. It's important that it gets done. Like I said, it's, it's wrong to go too far the other direction and say water baptism is not important. But he's saying, I just don't remember who did it, and it's really not why I was sent. This verse, I think, is very powerful on the issue of baptismal regeneration. Any other questions before we get to child baptism? Okay. Now, child baptism is different than infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. Here, it's not so much a matter of, um, you know, an aberrant view or a wrong view. It's just a, a gray area and a difficult area for people. And that is, at what age should you baptize a child, if you even should baptize a child as such? That's, that's really the discussion. Um, and it's obviously a uniquely Baptist problem. Why do I say that? Why is it not an issue for the Presbyterians? They don't struggle with this. Child baptism. Huh? Yeah, they, I mean, they get it done right early on. They wonder why you waited so long, you know? <laughs> so, they, you know, it's a diff- they just see baptism differently than we do, okay? We, as Baptists, will only baptize those that give a credible profession of faith in Christ. Well, what is that in a child's life? That's the question. At what point can a uh, profession of faith be called credible? Now, let's start with noble motives. And by the way, I wrote about a 16-page document on this, which will be better and more careful than the teaching I give tonight. All right? I, I hope to do the best I could, you know, in synopsizing it and bringing it across. But there's 20 of them at the back if you want to grab, grab one, or maybe you already did and they're gone. Yes, you probably already did. So Matthew's got one. Um, if you want one and there wasn't one there, let us know and, we'll, and I'll get you one. If you want to, you want to spend some more. How many, how many of you don't, didn't get one? No, not that one. It's we got a white cover. Why don't you make about 15 of them? Thanks, Matthew. I'm sorry. All right. Um, so that's a, that, actually that's written in prose form, like an article would be. So you can read, you know, what I think. All right. Well, let's start with this: uh, noble motives, the salvation of children. The central purpose of parenting is the salvation of children, or a central purpose. I don't know, the the central could always be argued the glory of God. But let's let's look at it this way: Matthew 16:26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This prioritizes the soul over everything else, right? In other words, the soul is of greater value or worth than the whole world. Well, you could ask a similar question since parents kind of want to give their children as much of the world as they can, you know, a good education, a good home, you know, experiences, uh, you know, musical instruments and all kinds of things. They want to give a lot of that to their children, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the question you could ask a parent is, what would it profit you as a parent if your child should gain the whole world and lose his or her soul? That would be of no value. So Christian parents, I think, put, rightly so, a priority on spiritual development of their children, that their children would be saved. So bringing children to a saving knowledge of Christ then would be central to all Christian parenting. Uh, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And we must imagine that the training and instruction of the Lord, the centerpiece of that would be the gospel itself, that they would understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And so, you know, therefore, I believe that 
uppermost in a parent's mind day after day after day, and frankly, from even before, from, from the time of conception. I would urge parents to start praying for their children and, you know, husbands can talk through the womb to their little babies. I mean, start early, friends. That's really early. Um, but I mean, start right away telling them the gospel, telling them about Jesus, telling them the good news. Don't wait, okay? So please, when we're talking about baptism, would you please do me the favor of separating coming to faith in Christ, you know, regeneration, having your sins forgiven, and water baptism. Didn't we just talk about that a moment ago? <laughs> They're two different things. We, are not, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe they have to be water baptized to go to heaven. They do, however, have to hear the gospel and believe it. That they have to do. So, please hear me very plainly. I am advocating that parents bring their children to Christ as soon as they possibly can, knowing that they don't have the power to do so. And you know you you don't. You are evangelists. That's what you are. And all you can do is preach the gospel to them like any other person and set an example on how you live. But you can't actually bring them to heaven can't actually bring them. One of the key issues with the New Testament and Jesus' statement, he said, do not suppose that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying, your allegiance to me should be higher than your allegiance to your biological family. And he also said more than that. In effect, he's pretty much making a promise. He's not going to regenerate everybody in every biological family. You see what I'm saying? In other words, there's no guarantee that because a member of that family is a believer in Christ, everyone in that family is going to go to heaven. That is, there's no guarantee and experience proves this out, doesn't it? How many of us have unsaved, very close relatives, even parents, siblings, etc.? There are no guarantees and you can't bring your father or mother to Christ. You can pray, you can try, you can do whatever you want. You should. You should weep. You should pray. You should set an example. You should think of new ways. You should get friends to come and share with them. You should have many prayer You should do all of that, but you know you can't bring them. Same is true of your children. And it's a little harder to see with children because we have tremendous influence on many aspects of their development. But we can't do this. This is a glory reserved for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has the power to regenerate lost sinners. But what we can do is we can evangelize them. When should we start evangelizing them? I already answered this one. When when should we start evangelizing them? Bring them home from the hospital, even before that, when they still have that little electronic beeper thing around around their fat little ankles, you know, and you can't get them out. I mean, talk to them about Jesus. Say, oh, but they won't understand. And they probably won't. I mean, they won't. But at least you're training yourself. <laughs> you're training yourself to say Jesus to them, to pray for them, to bring them to Jesus in prayer and to, and to share the gospel with them. Because, you know, they grow up really quickly, I've noticed. <laughs> and you don't want to say, well, suddenly, now it's time to start evangelizing them. You know, just do it all along. Read them the Bible the whole time. All right, so you hear me that on that because what I hear so often is, is people make these kinds of statements like because I don't believe in baptizing children as early as they believe I should ba- baptize children that I don't believe in bringing children to faith in Christ. That is not at all the case. I think that, that I actually, another thing people say is that I don't think that people can come to faith at a really early age. That is not true. I think they can absolutely come to faith in Christ at a very early age. I'm just saying it's hard to tell from the outside, friends. 
Very hard to tell. And so God knows. He knows what he's done in that person's heart, and he's the only one that needs to know at that early stage. Parents should keep on evangelizing and training and teaching and doing all that stuff. They should do that all along. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? And, and so you say, well, what do I say when they want to pray to receive Jesus? And I, we'll get to all that. Right? Maybe. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll have, we have no hope of getting to Lord's Supper tonight. Zero. All right? But uh, let's talk about this thoroughly because we may not have this chance again. All right? So... From the beginning, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Talk about them. Impress them on your children. Sorry. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them as on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That is referring to the law of Moses. My argument here is a how much greater argument. If that's what Jewish fathers should do for their children with the law of Moses, how much greater is the requirement that Christian parents do this with the gospel for their children? That's all I'm saying. So do this, only do it with the gospel. Do it with Jesus. Talk about him when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Saturate their lives with the gospel. Yes, but what about baptism, you may ask? Well, I do ask. It's right here on the page. So I guess we have to talk about baptism. All right? What do we do about baptism? Charles Spurgeon, who's answering critics, who said in Matthew 19, 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Actually, he was quoting it from Mark. I love what Spurgeon said here. He preached this in the sermon, children brought to Christ and not to the font, font being baptism. Now, in fairness, Spurgeon here is arguing against infant baptism, not against child baptism. But still, I like what he says here. Spurgeon said, in handling this text... In what I believe to be its true light, I shall commence, first of all, by observing that this text has not the shadow of the shade of the ghost of a connection with baptism. Okay, did you get it? <laughs> I didn't put the caps in there, by the way. It was in the sermon as it was printed on the Internet. Okay, we get it. He's saying that Matthew 19.14 does not say anything about baptism. There is no line of connection so substantial as a spider's web between this incident and baptism. Or at least my imagination is not vivid enough to conceive one. This I will prove to you if you'll follow me for a moment. You have to read the whole sermon. It's really well done. It's very clear, dear friends, that these young children are brought, were not brought to Jesus Christ by their friends to be baptized. They brought young children to him that he should touch them, says Mark. Matthew describes the children as being brought that he would put his hands on them and pray for them. But there's not a hint about their being baptized. Well, as I said, he's arguing against infant baptism. What would he say about child baptism? Is that a different matter? I don't know. I haven't done enough research to see what Spurgeon did about child baptism. All right, but there are noble motives, okay? That your children will walk in the faith, that they will come to faith. Those are noble motives. There are some motives in this question that are not so noble. They're not so noble. All right, let's talk about the parent aspect what I call the parental shortcut, the Baptist shortcut. Okay, what is the Baptist shortcut? Get them to pray the sinner's prayer at an early age, get the pastor to baptize them soon thereafter, and then teach them once saved, always saved, and then whatever they do after that, we at least know we got them saved. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, that's not the real gospel. That's not the book of Romans. That's not justification, sanctification, glorification. That's not true, genuine regeneration. That's a shortcut and I think we ought to be against it. I think we ought to teach parents what genuine conversion is. We ought to teach them what the gospel really is. We ought to teach them what evangelism really is. We should teach them what to look for in a child in terms of what we call marks of regeneration. Do it right, friends. 
and you should pray over them and you should be concerned over them and you should shepherd their souls as they grow and not teach them false doctrines like because they prayed the sinner's prayer and were water baptized that they're definitely saved. That is not taught anywhere. Who teaches that? It's not in the Bible that if you pray the sinner's prayer and you're water baptized, you will most definitely go to heaven no matter what happens thereafter. That's just not taught in the Bible. I don't know where we even get that. Read the book of Hebrews and all the warnings there are there about apostasy and other things. Very serious. We have to take this very, very seriously. And so let's teach the genuine, genuine thing. By the way, uh, somebody was uh, talking to me uh, about somebody that died. This was, uh, at a, a, you know, it was a funeral situation. It, was, it wasn't at a funeral. It was a, we were talking about the person that died. And um, it was an, 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 a very much older man uh, in the church. And um, because of the funeral, sons and daughters and, and extended family were coming into town. We were discussing this man's son. And the individual who was telling me the story said that when this man's son was 12 years old, everybody in the class, in their Sunday school class, was challenged that they needed to believe in Jesus and they needed to be baptized. But this man who had died wouldn't let his 12-year-old son be baptized at that point. Uh, I don't know why and I don't know exactly what the reasons were, but he just felt he should wait. Okay? Um, and I'm not saying he had the highest or best motives. I'm just saying that's how it happened. He, he said, you're not ready. You need to wait. Well, as the years passed, uh, the child lost interest in being baptized, wasn't really inter that interested in spiritual things. And once they grew into their 20s and 30s, they weren't attending church at all. And, had, and it's been that way for decades now. Okay? And we're talking about this individual, the son, the dead man's son. And this person who was speaking to me said, if only they had been baptized then, you see. Do you, not, do you not see how dangerous that thinking is? We don't believe in baptismal regeneration, right? Is the person a Christian or not? Well, we don't know for sure, but what does the evidence say? They haven't been to church in decades. They're able-bodied people. They haven't been to the church and been to any church in 30 years. They don't ever talk about Jesus. They don't read the Bible. There's nothing of Christ in their lives. But if only they've been baptized when they were 12. Friends, how many, is it possible to be baptized and not really be regenerate? Is it possible you be baptized at a Baptist church, 12 years old, and not really be saved? Is that possible? I actually think it's a help to him to not have been baptized. He is under no delusions of being a Christian. You actually have a little bit of an advantage because you can say, you know you're not a Christian. Yes, I know it. But there are probably some people that were baptized from that Sunday school class, maybe, I don't know, but a class like it at age 12. They're not any more regenerate than this guy, but at least they know they're a member of a church somewhere. They were water baptized, and at least they have that to hold on to. What do they hold on to? Nothing, an emptiness, a, a spider's web. They're not holding on to anything. They're sure not holding on to Christ. So for me, I'd like to take away the delusion, remove it, okay? And we had, I had a very gentle conversation with the person. The more we talked, they soon repented or turned away from that whole you know, way of thinking. He said, you know, probably it was better that they weren't baptized because they're not born again. And, you know, as Baptists, we seek to baptize only those that are genuinely born again. So there's the parental shortcut. Shortcut. There's also the pastoral shortcut. Okay, pastoral shortcut. What do I mean by that? Well, the shortcut to a great church is padded baptismal statistics. Okay? You want a great church? Have big baptismal numbers. Okay? Well, the reality might be something different, but you know something? We are asked, and actually I was demanded recently by a... Baptist functionary 
to give data that we apparently had missed a deadline to give. It was a very strong email. I found it interesting, and I held myself back. I, I noticed that, you know, if you respond immediately to emails, that's generally a bad idea. So wait a day or two and then give a more gentle response. And the more gentle response is, gee, I'm sorry, we'll get the stats to you as soon as possible. Good email. Whew, nothing to go apologize for later. That's a good thing, okay? But I, I just found it interesting. There is a tremendous interest in statistics, these kind of statistics, and uh, the shortcut, the idea is that the best pastors have the biggest churches and baptize the most people. And the more people you baptize, the better a pastor you are. Well, what can this lead to? Well, there's an article in Christianity Today in June of 2000 about a church in Arkansas that has a whole new approach to child ministry. Springdale, Arkansas hired, listen to this, a well-known former Disney World designer of children's amusement rides to design two high-tech sets for their elementary age worship areas. Can you believe this? I'll just keep reading. Toontown for first through third graders and Planet 45 for fourth and fifth graders. The fully animated cartoon town has 26-foot-tall buildings uh, the rationale behind the $270,000 project is summed up by the church's children minister. Quote, putting a talking head in front of kids for an hour doesn't work. This is a visual generation. We need to use technology to the max, end quote. That includes, get this, a special baptistry which is built around a fire engine. When the child is baptized, the sirens sound and the confetti is fired out of cannons. Some have been requesting multiple baptisms, all right? You can imagine. I fear, but I wonder if they actually are permitted to be baptized multiple times, and the stats go way up at that point. You know, same kid's been baptized seven times. Um, this is not good. Do you sense that this is not good? I think it's clearly not good, all right? A fire engine baptistry for young children. So I decided to dig a little, little deeper. I found an annual report, the most recent I could find in which the stats were, were available on the Internet was 2002. I would have gotten more recent if I could have. Maybe there's some more now. I don't know. <clears throat> but they actually reported, this is, these are the National Southern Baptist Convention Statistics for Baptisms, a category zero to five years. I was troubled by this. You should be troubled by it too. The category of zero to five years. Picture, if you will, a five-year-old that you know. Okay? And that's the best case. Imagine the zero case. <laughs> okay? At that point, friends, that's just flat-out pedo-baptism. That's what the pedo part is in pedo-baptism. They are infants. All right? So are any infants baptized in Southern Baptist Convention churches? I would hope not, but there's the zero to five category. Oh, it's just a spreadsheet. Forget it. It's just statistics. Well, at least we have to think there's some five-year-olds that were baptized. How many? Well, in that age category nationwide, 4,386. I think that's bad. I think 4,386 zero to five-year-olds baptized in Southern Baptist Convention churches is a bad thing. Now, with this comes, I think, an inconsistent practice. People tend to be inconsistent on this issue. They may bring their child at age whatever and want you to baptize that child, whatever that age is. If you think it's best to wait, best for the general health of the church and for these issues that we're discussing here, best to wait, they might get displeased with you. However, most Baptists are uncomfortable at some lower cutoff age, or else they're really probably not truly Baptist. Isn't there some age at which you would not like to see me baptize someone this coming Sunday? What do you think? It, would, would it trouble you to see me baptizing Calvin? He's seven. How about Daphne? Hi. 
would you like to be baptized this Sunday? She's going to think about it, okay? <laughs> would it trouble you if I, took, if I took Daphne into the baptismal area and had her give her testimony and ask you questions? Would that doors, would that trouble you? Do you think it's likely? No. No, okay, good. <laughs> so at, at, well, it may not trouble you. Yeah, you're asking me, but you have a cutoff. But you have a cutoff, don't you? Sure. So there's the inconsistent practice. And that's why we need grace and love in this discussion. Because I have received the opposite many times in this discussion. The opposite. You're saying that my child's not converted? That was said by people right before they left this church. No, I am not saying any such thing, that your child's not converted. I sure hope they are. I just don't know. And I don't just look at the outward condition or situation. I have a responsibility to the whole church. I have to think about what's best for the whole church. Notice they are still bringing them to the elders to have them baptized. Okay? At that point, it was to the senior pastor to have them baptized. Why don't you just go do it yourself? Do it in your tub or do it in a lake, whatever, if you want to do it. Well, no, it needs to be done in the church. By an, all right, well, then there's a mutuality here. kind of reminds me of the, um, the Spurgeon quote where somebody came to Spurgeon and said, the Lord has told me that I'm to preach in your pulpit this Sunday. He said, well, that's fine. When the Lord tells me, then you can do it. Okay, there's a mutuality here. There's a, a mutual relationship. And so the pastors have to see it, not just the parents. There's a relationship between the two. So, but there is a cutoff, a, blo- a bottom cutoff. Anybody who doesn't have one, I would contend is a paedo-baptist and not a genuine Baptist, not truly a Baptist. So what, what is it for you? You know, you, maybe you're already willing to fly your flag. Seven. Why seven? How about six? Because I think my son made a credible testimony to Savior. Okay, how about six? How about five? How about four? All right, and see what I'm saying? You keep driving it down, and at some point you're going to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that universally. I don't care what they can say. Suppose you have a prodigy, a Mozart-like prodigy at age three. Would you baptize him? Now, here's the thing I want to say. What is the pressure? What, what, why, why does it have to happen? We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. You know that the Roman Catholics, you know what they teach happens to an infant that dies without having been baptized? They go to limbo, the limbus and phantom. They never go to heaven or hell. It's kind of like another thing. It's not even purgatory now. So you have four, you know, you can go to heaven, hell, purgatory, or limbo, okay? And so limbo is for unbaptized infants, Okay? Not, it's not biblical. We're not that. We don't believe that. So at what point, you know, do we say, okay, baptismal regeneration doesn't happen. They don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Preach the gospel. Teach them the gospel and keep moving with it. Let me keep going if you would. There are special problems with a child's profession of faith. Okay? From infancy, you are going to teach them phrases of the Christian life. I mean, they're learning English anyway, right? Aren't you going to teach them things like Jesus died for me and God loves me and all that kind of thing, they will be able to say them back before they understand anything about those phrases. Is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing to teach children to parrot back phrases that they don't understand? Is that a bad thing? Well, it's a good thing. Is it a bad thing to baptize them based on those parroted expressions? I think it is. You say, well, what if they're not parroted? What if they're genuine? Well, there's the rub, dear friends. At what, how do you know when they're genuine or when they're parroted? How can we tell? There are some questions here, all right? Well, you ask them questions, all right? You ask them some questions. All right, so how do we do it? First of all, we acknowledge biblically there's a difference between a child and a man, right? 1 Corinthians 13 says, When I was a child, I thought like a child. I talked like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 
is there a childish profession of faith in Christ and then a man profession of faith in Christ? Do we lower the standards with that discussion? Somebody said you should treat them the same, everybody the same, have the same conversation with them. I just want you to picture it. Please picture pastoral ministry, picture the chairs in my office, and there is the little kid, okay, his legs dangling, sitting there a few inches from the ground, and he's there with nervous mom or dad or both, and the time has come for the inquisition or the interview or whatever it is, okay? How would you conduct it? The same way you do with the adults, really? Are you going to cut the child any slack? You're stuck either way. If you don't cut the child any slack, then you really don't show any understanding of child development or intelligence or any of that sort of stuff. You're kind of a bad pastor at that point. You need to give them some grace. How much? How do we get at the real thing that the child is genuinely born again and understands substitutionary atonement, propitiation, whatever you want to say? Oh, they can't know those terms. Well, they need to understand the concepts. How much of the gospel do they need to understand? God, man, Christ response. How much of that do they have to understand? And I keep asking all the time, what is the hurry? What are we pressing for? What, why? Well, we have to be obedient, okay? I think we, we need to be obedient. I think it's very important that we be obedient. I think you'll see that in, you know, very soon. Uh, I think it's important for children to grow up and to be baptized. There's another issue, and that is the issue of counting the cost. Okay, what do we mean by counting the cost? Here, I'll go ahead and read a verse. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not uh, first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first uh, sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, will he, uh, send a de- he, sorry, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So the, the issue of counting the cost has to do with what? The last phrase or verse tells you. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about counting the cost? Christian, what is this even referring to? Is it referring to going in the mission field? No, it's look at it, I mean, he's being a disciple. Being a disciple, becoming a Christian. Okay. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, what did he do? Sold some stuff. Well, what does that represent? The selling of things. Giving up everything to follow Jesus. Okay. Now let's picture the child growing up in the good Christian home. What does he or she give up to become a Christian? What are they giving up? Do they have any possible conception? My feeling is that a good Christian home is going to be protecting those little ones from persecution and opposition and harassment and all of the evils of the world because they're just not ready to face them yet. They're living in a sheltered, protected environment. All right? So, like the parable of the seed in the soils. All right? There's the seed that falls on the path and the birds come and eat it up. Nothing there. Then there's the the seed that falls in the rocky soil. Uh, It grows up quickly because the soil is shallow, but when the sun comes up, the plants are scorched and they wither because they have no root. Jesus then explains it, saying, uh, the one that fell on the rocky soil is the one who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. I say it's very difficult for trouble and persecution 
because of the word to come to a child in that particular situation. Frankly, I would say that's the very thing you're protecting your children from. So how can we know if, if it's a genuine or so-called creditable profession of faith? Can the Ethiopian eunuch count the cost? Is he able to say, you know, if I come to faith in Christ, it's going to have this or that effect on my life? I'm uh, in charge of the treasury of Can uh, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Is this going to change my life at all? Probably. Does he know every way it's going to change? No. But he is able at least to fulfill Jesus' uh, command to count the cost. He's able to say, I'm willing to pay whatever it costs to follow Jesus. So, as I've said before, and I'll say again, in my house, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. We don't practice religious freedom. We don't give them an option. We make them come to church. We, we don't hope that they look at it that way. We kind of hope it's more like we make them eat ice cream. You know, we, don't, we hope that they want to. Um, they do. They, they seem to want to come, and I'm delighted about that. Um, but we are protecting them from this statement. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That's what Jesus says. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. All right, well, we've already covered should, how the elders carry on the conversation. We've already been through that. Let's talk about this important issue of the age of accountability. What is that? What is the age of accountability? Jesus begins to, you're asking a specific year, but assume the concept means the age at which the Lord would impute guilt for certain sinful behaviors. And the idea is before the age of accountability, what? They're not accountable. Whatever the Lord wants to decide with that. Right, and so just by the simple title, before the age of accountability, they are not accountable, all right? And after the age of accountability, they are accountable, okay? Do you think you could support that concept from Scripture? If so, what verses would you use? I'm not saying you can or can't. I'm not saying I can or can't. I'll let you know what I think in a moment, all right? How, what verses would you use? Yes? Well, I don't know the verses, but I would probably use the story of David and Bathsheba's baby, your David's statement about the child I will go to him but he will not come to me of course the, the one problem with that particular verse is that by that same language we would have to imagine that King Saul um, is in heaven as well because uh, remember how Samuel said tomorrow you and your sons will be with me so what did the ghost Samuel mean by tomorrow you and your sons will be with me? Well, how do you read that? As you read that, that text, how do you read that when Samuel through the witch at Endor says tomorrow you and your sons will be with me? When you read that, what do you think it means? You'll be in heaven? Huh? They're going to be dead. I just read it that they're going to be dead. So I think it's possible that that verse from David could mean that, but I just don't think it's enough. Um, for me, if you're asking about infants and all that, that's a different question than, than the, this question. But age of accountability has to do with what the child understands, at what point the light dawns, at what point they can grasp the gospel uh, enough so that they can have a genuine faith and have a, therefore, credible profession of faith in Christ, at what age that is. Do you know what it is? And if you were to tell me 
a number, 789, what scripture would you use to support that number? Yeah, I think that asserts that he's a human being. He's a person. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes on him, but that, that's very early for an age of accountability, still in the womb. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, a, that's a, good, a good verse to bring up. I think, frankly think about that a lot, uh, uh, think about that a lot in terms of uh, abortion. Isaiah, before the child knows to say this or that, yes. So, therefore, based on Isaiah, I think there probably is one. I just don't know what it is. I really think it's God's business, all right? It's God's business. So what am I advocating here? What am I teaching? I'm asking that you be charitable. I'm asking that you allow the elders to follow their own conscience on who they'll baptize. That's what I'm asking. I'm asking that we not have replays of some scenes that I've painfully had to go through in which people are saying, you're saying my baby's not a Christian. I mean, where does that come from? Because they're linking the, the Lord's, I mean, sorry, the uh, sinner's prayer with water baptism in the quick kind of way that I described earlier. Get them to pray the sinner's prayer, get them water baptized as soon as possible, teach them once saved, always saved. The, the wonderful triad. And then you're at least done with the major part of your religious training of your children. I don't think it's that hard to get a young child to pray the sinner's prayer. I really don't think it's hard. I mean, you guys have children, you've watched them grow up. At what age do you think you really could get them to pray a sinner's prayer? A cogent sinner's prayer. What do you think, Christy? At what age do you think we could get our kids to pray something like that? Daniel was very concerned about Jenny's salvation when we were in Japan. She was not yet three, and they would go out and play soccer in the yard. He would beg her to come to Christ. Mm-hmm. He would teach her how to pray. Then he'd come in very excited and tell us, and show me he's a Christian that day. Yeah, well, she was not yet three. God willing, she's going to be baptized this Sunday. So uh, I didn't think she was ready for baptism. <laughs> I think she is now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not a big achievement to get a child growing up in a Christian home to pray the sinner's prayer at an early age. Uh, it's not. Most Christian parents, most Baptist parents, know even then to wait a while. They don't generally bring them even at that early stage. So then if we're going to start getting into 7, 8, 9, 10, etc., then at that point you have to realize the partnership, and that's really what it is, between the parents and the elders. The elders aren't with the child all the time. They don't know the ins and outs and all that. I think the elders' responsibility is to teach the children, or sorry, teach the uh, adults what genuine regeneration is, how to look for it in a child, how, how to train for it, how to pray for it, all that kind of thing. Teach against baptismal regeneration. Teach that at some point they should be baptized. In my opinion, there's no harm in waiting to a point. There does come a point in which waiting becomes disobedience, and that's the whole thing. We're in gray area here, dear friends, both with creditable profession of faith and when waiting is waiting too long and we're no longer really being obedient. So somewhere in the kind of gray area, mushy area, we're going to resolve what to do. I believe it's wrong and unhelpful for a church to publish an age below which they won't even consider baptism just to kind of solve the problem at that point. How does that absolutely not solve the problem? Suppose we elders come out with a statement saying, please don't even bring your children before age 12. How will that actually create a problem for the elders? At 12, what's going to happen? Bing, 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 bing. Lots of conversions at 12. And not only that, but like happened in that Sunday school class, pressure on the families to bring their kids at that point. Aren't they saved? Aren't they? It, and it creates something. There's another issue too. Where did the number 12 come from? Where did you get it? 
I like to do everything by Scripture. I don't even know where that number would come from. Oh, Jesus was 12 in Luke chapter 2. I mean, just do a... I mean, I don't know what we're going to do with 12. I don't, you know... And why always 12? I always think that's interesting. Maybe it's because of the Jewish manhood bar mitzvah thing. I don't really know. But for me, that's two problems. It interjects an unnatural force in the life of the church, you know, that could create you know, a dynamic that's unhelpful. And whatever number you set has no scriptural warrant. There's no, there's no warrant for it. You can't, you can't set that number. So then what should we do? Well, I think we should teach parents like we're teaching now. If the parents really want the elders to meet with a the child, they should meet with the child. Okay? And we should find out. And it could be that there are unusual circumstances in that child's life. The, the little plant growing up has had a chance to be tested in some way. The p- profession can be more credible than usually happens at that early age. I don't want to say. I just want to observe and, and talk. And the elders themselves should continue to pray through this issue. We've only begun to think about these things um, and uh, work it through uh, together. And there shouldn't be uh, harsh judgmentalism on on any side. So these are summary statements on page 9. Because child conversion is so important, child baptism is so important to both parents and pastors alike, uh, there can frequently, because of that, be too much emotion in discussing this issue. I've experienced that myself. False motives for baptizing children too early are very damaging. These include parents' desire to get their kids saved, but thus dealing too lightly with sin, and churches' desire to maximize baptismal statistics. The greatest danger of too early baptism is false assurance given to an unregenerate person. We should all acknowledge that that's a danger. That's a bad thing. The second greatest danger is the loss of a standard of regenerate church membership and the subsequent pollution of the local church. What do I mean by that? Well, pray the sinner's prayer, you know, water baptism. Back in those days, that meant immediate membership in the church, right? So when you're water baptized, you're now a member of the church you now may have an unregenerate church member. If you do that a lot over years and years and years and decades and decades, you might have a lot of unregenerate church members. Not a couple, a lot of them. So that's because you lowered the standard on baptism. Rebaptism is a very common issue among those who are baptized too early. Is it not? I mean, aren't you aware of that? I mean, people get baptized at age whatever, and then they go to Christian camp and get baptized at age whatever plus six. And then they get baptized maybe again in college with the Campus Crusade for Christ's ministry. And then it's time for them. Now that one really took and that one settled in. I actually think we should just be baptized once. Now, I know it's not a perfect world. And I think it may happen that somebody could be baptized at age 17 or 18 and then, you know, realize later that they had deceived people. And then later, I think that can happen. I think we should be open for that. But rebaptism isn't a rare thing. It's actually a very, very common thing in Baptist life. Baptism should be administered only to those who can make a credible profession of faith in Christ. A credible profession of faith in Christ can be uh, completely verbal, as in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch. By testing the words, a pastor can know whether or not an adult should be baptized. However, credible profession of faith in children is much more difficult to discern since they're not so skilled with words and can also merely parrot back things they've been taught. It's harder to get at what they really think or believe. Nearly everyone in Baptist life is uncomfortable with some level of child baptism, especially in the very young. Children are different than adults, as shown by Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, etc. Children do not have to count the cost as much as adults, especially in the case of children, uh, ho- Christian homes sorry, in which Christian faith is strongly enjoined. Baptismal regeneration is unscriptural. No one is saved by water baptism, and the failure to receive water baptism does not negate genuine faith. Yes. 
Can you just speak to the um, person who was baptized as an infant and then desires to be baptized as they come to faith? Oh, um, I think as a Baptist, I don't accept infant baptism as genuine baptism, so I just don't think they've been baptized. And I think that when they have come to faith in Christ, then they should follow the Lord in baptism and obey that command. If you ask me about a person who has a different experience, they were baptized as a young child, and since then have come into a very vigorous understanding of the gospel and are now walking very openly with Christ and are wondering about their earlier baptism and don't know whether they should be baptized again or not, all I can do is leave it to them, but give them guidelines by which they can assess their own experience. Basically, I advocate that they not be rebaptized unless they know beyond a shadow of a doubt as best they can that they were definitely not regenerate when they were baptized the first time. They're basically, their conscience is testifying against them. They need to be baptized. But I leave it to them. How, what else can I do? I wasn't there at the time. So it's a good question. Children must be evangelized and can come to genuine faith at a very early age. Would you like circle that at the bottom so that, I mean, I don't ever hear strange and slanderous things said against me again. I do believe children can come to a genuine faith at a very early age. Ch uh, churches ought not to set, have set age levels or policies concerning baptism lest they begin a mindless machinery that's difficult to control, also because such an age limit is not taught in the Bible. Rather, parents and pastors and church members should study the marks of genuine work of God in the soul and apply these to each case individually. There is no long-range harm in waiting on baptism for a child's profession to be proven out by more mature evidence. Christians should act in charity toward one another on this issue since it is a gray issue, a so-called debatable issue from Romans 14. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the uh, time we spent tonight on baptismal regeneration and child baptism. And Father, I pray that you would enable us uh, to know your will and your mind in this. I pray that we would bring little children, even at a very young age, to Christ, bring them to Jesus, that they would know about Jesus and his, his love for them and his death on the cross and his resurrection. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom concerning when they should be baptized and that there would be unity in the church on this and that you would give us a special discerning heart in a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. Father, I pray that you would help the elders to know what to do uh, on this issue and come to unity uh, to lead the church well. Father, I thank you for the time we've had to study this tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.